next speaker, um, Ian McGilchrist, is a psychiatrist who lived in London and now lives in the Isle of Skye. He lectures and writes there. He's also the author of an extraordinary and highly acclaimed um, book about consciousness called The Master and His Emissary. Uh, please welcome to the stage Professor Ian McGilchrist. Well, thank you very much, and uh, it's daunting following on from such brilliant uh, discussions this morning. I, I resonated with much I heard, particularly with the idea of an exam question. Um, <laughs> in fact, once uh, to get a fellowship, I had to sit an exam, one paper of which was just a single word, which you had to write about for th three hours. Um, in my case, it was evil, which was uh, a gift, because I got some experience of that. And, uh, <laughs> um, but... Uh, I was a little bit daunted by um, the business of uh, think, you see. A uh, tricky one. Um, I gave the matter some thought, um, but unfortunately the matter didn't give it back again, and I ran off with it, and so I'm just going to have to make it all up. Um, which actually reminds me of something interesting about um, the nature of thought and the way different disciplines think about it. I was told by a former fellow of Merton College, Oxford, which was where J.R.R. Tolkien was a fellow, that... Um, uh, people got very tired of uh, guests coming in and fawning on the great man. And um, one day, some visitor was saying to Mr. Tolkien, gosh, I just love your books. They're so full of imagination. And from behind a newspaper, a mathematician snorted, imagination? Imagination? Made it all up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so I suppose uh, to come to the serious business of matter and consciousness. Uh, the rather maligned uh, Descartes surely got at least this right, that the one thing we can't doubt is our consciousness. Um, everything that we could know is, uh, is uh, subject to the fact that it is grounded on that consciousness, which is why the idea that consciousness is an illusion, an idea peddled by some quite distinguished minds, um, it is a basic error because for there to be an illusion there has to be a consciousness already to be eluded. So um, we, we don't need to worry too much about that. But matter seems to me a very strange thing actually. Um, consciousness I know about. But matter is an element in consciousness. That's uh, after all its status. It, it's not a primary thing. It's something we know through consciousness. And um, matter seems a very odd thing. It's a sort of aspect of consciousness that resists my will is one way of of thinking about it. So uh, I think, uh, therefore I am, um, at least in the sense that it expresses that consciousness is the basic thing that lets us know that we exist, uh, it, it seems to be on the right track. And I, I would refine it, um, as Jörg Pankzeb pointed out, it might be better to say, I feel, therefore I am, because one, it's a matter of consciousness, not necessarily the process of thinking. Well. Thinking is a, is a difficult thing to, to pin down. Um, it can mean to imagine, to remember, to calculate, to reflect, to ponder, to meditate, to believe, to judge, and many other things. But what it is doing is creating and helping us relate to a version of the world, a model of the world. And indeed, the Old English thenkan, which is the origin of the word think, uh, probably meant to cause to appear to oneself, uh, uh, to seem, in other words. And this still exists in the 
rather old-fashioned phrase, methinks it seems to me. The way we attend to the world, the way we think about it, changes the nature of what we find there. And what we find there then governs the way we choose to attend to it or think about it. I've written about this extensively in the book um, referred to, The Master and His Emissary, which deals with the idea that the basic difference between the two hemispheres of the brain is that they've evolved for a very good uh, Darwinian reason of survival to give attention to the world in two ways, one very precise and limited in its range, and the other much more general and open and on the alert. And that these very different kinds of attention give rise to different phenomenological worlds. We're not aware of that, because if we were aware of it, we wouldn't be able to act. So evolution has taken care uh, uh, to, to hide that fact from us. But it is nonetheless an astonishing fact, which can be demonstrated by looking at a whole range of literature. That's the subject of the Master and his Emissary, and I'm not going to talk about it particularly today. But I think the idea that I want to stress is that we don't so much think about the world as we think a world. And thinking is an aspect of the way we attend to the world, and not all kinds of thinking are come with, a, with the same kind of attention. Uh, it, it can be explicit or conscious, and it can be implicit, unconscious, and much, in fact, of what we consider our most sophisticated thinking goes on largely unconsciously. We don't need a conscious attention to make decisions, to solve problems, to reach judgments. And in fact, sometimes when we bring our conscious minds to bear on it, we can make the judgments, the decisions worse. In the medical world, in the scientific world, we prize a certain kind of thinking because we believe it can discover the truth. Now, if the world only comes into being because of the way we attend to it, there can't be a single truth from which to start. And reason can't help us here. Reason is a consistency tool. That's all it is. It just means that if you start with certain premises, it can tell you what is consistent with it. What it can't tell you is whether you've started from the right premises. It can't also tell you why you're going to use reason. We have to intuit that. We can't reason to that. And indeed, the consequences of our thinking, the consequences of our reasoning, aren't uh, just bald facts. They exist in the context of persons and lives and a whole very complex animate world. And so at the end of the day, the understanding of what we have discovered by reason has to be done uh, by uh, calling on judgments and values and things that come from experience. So there isn't actually, it is an illusion that there is certainty. And indeed, I think many of the awful things about uh, the world at the moment come from people who believe that they have access to a certain truth, whether that is uh, fundamentalist religious people or fundamentalist atheists. So um, I don't want to uh, uh, disparage this kind of thinking. In fact, I used some of it in preparing this talk. It has its limitations, is what I'm saying. And for one thing, explicit examination changes the nature of what is examined. We take things out of context and put them in the focus of attention, and they change their nature. So we haven't actually got access to what they are by doing this little procedure. And you only have to think of things like sex, religion, art, jokes, 
uh, none of these things work well when made explicit. Uh, they work best when they're outside the focus of attention. So there is a kind of knowledge uh, that comes from experience. And it doesn't always or usually see the world the same way as an explicit rationalistic thinking will do. Uh, Aristotle got there thousands of years ago, as usual, and described the difference between d different ways of understanding the world. Um, nowadays, we seem to have only one, or certain voices, public voices of science, think there is only one way of understanding the world. But Aristotle said, no, there are distinctions between uh, episteme and techne, and something called phronesis, which is, which is uh, embodied knowledge, the kind of knowledge you get from being a thinking human being who has lived. And it's close to what we might call practical wisdom. Uh, uh, the question of what is intuition was raised earlier, and I'm not going to be foolhardy enough to try and answer, but I do think that it's important that we recognize that while intuitions can lead one astray, they certainly can, they also are necessary to reaching any kind of uh, sense of the world that does have meaning. And we can go just as far astray by rationalizing. Um, you probably know a famous case described by Damasio uh, of a man who could no longer use his intuition to make judgments and so on, and his thinking went completely astray, and he was really deprived of the ability to lead a life at all. So uh, intuition is a very important thing. And the two hemispheres, um, I think, give rise to different ways of uh, thinking about the world. It, I'm not uh, going to say that the left does reason, and you know that's not true. The right is uh, very much uh, an important part of reason and uh, is, is a big contributor to mathematical thinking. Uh, nor am I going to say that feelings are only in the right hemisphere. They're not. They're in both. The left hemisphere, in fact, is quite emotional. One of the most um, lateralized uh, of emotions is anger, and it lateralizes to the left hemisphere. So. We need to sophisticate our thinking about that, but as I say, that's just the background. I'm not going to go into too much of that now. So thinking probably is something that when we focus on it, we think that's what it is that's in the focus. But when we don't focus on it, there's something else that is out of the focus, which is the whole background of our being. And, of course, the central nervous system extends well into the body and has nerves that go into every part of the body. And it is a truism that we don't think just with the brain. We think with the whole body. Uh, it's of interest that the, the gut has uh, 200 million neurons, slightly more than the brain of a dog, which is quite a lot of neurons when you come to think about it. And um, we, we, when I was in medical school, there was a puzzle about the heart. The heart had these uh, fibers coming from the brain, efferent fibers telling it what to do, but there were these other ones going back from the heart to the brain. Nobody knew what they were for. They were a bit of an embarrassment. People said, maybe they're for pain. You know. Well, of course, there are pain fib fibers, but there are far more than that. So in fact, the heart is giving us important information. So thinking and feeling with the body are inseparable. And meaning is grounded in the unconscious, where emotion and reason are not distinct. Vauvenargue, an 18th century French philosopher, said, emotion has taught mankind to reason. Reason is built on emotion, is grounded on things that are emotional. And Damasio has made a career out of making that point um, in the last uh, 30 years or so. In fact, the Proto-Indo-European root of the word think doesn't distinguish thinking and feeling and is the root of both think and thank. So value-laden relationship is also 
close to the idea of thinking. And indeed, we have that still when we buy a card saying thinking of you, bearing someone in mind, minding about them, is a kind of care. Um, it, it has a positive connotation. And in fact, mind originally meant, and is etymologically related to memory, and it was to call to mind from your memory, to bear in mind, and it was originally loving memory, fond or honored memory, again with a positive connotation, as in, we remember the dead. And as I say, when you mind, you care. You mind someone or you mind something means you look after it or you care about it and you take care for it. Now, I'm not a Chinese speaker, alas, but I, I believe that in Chinese, the word for think involves the root for heart. And uh, it has, uh, as far as I understand, the addition of um, the idea of a, an eye and of a tree. I, I don't personally understand quite what that tree is there, but uh, it has been interpreted by people who know more than I do as a question of taking a, a look at your heart, uh, much as a carpenter might appraise the wood in a tree. And in fact, the Chinese don't have a word that translates as concept, that absolutely disembodied uh, thing that we, we talk about. It simply doesn't occur to them that there could be such a thing. And the word that translates concept in Chinese means a simple symbolic impression from experience. So it's very much rooted and grounded there. And I have a feeling that much of the mind-body problem comes from the way we've been taught by our language to think. Uh, I mean, for example, animism, uh, well, uh, is, is much uh, d discredited now um, as in the Western world, but the Chinese believe that, in fact, all things have a kind of, kind of life, and they don't think that um, you could have such opposites as idealism and realism. Um, I, I'm delighted to tell you that the word in Chinese for idealism means all heart theory, uh, <laughs> but idealism and realism are not, uh, not uh, as they are in the West, uh, opposites, I think, for, um, or not necessarily for, for the human mind, and in other cultures may not be, um, they may be dualities. And I'm making a distinction between things that are mutually exclusive and things that co-arise and give meaning to one another. And of course, meaning and thinking go even deeper. They go right down into the body. And semantics is thought to be derived from pointing, and when children start to speak, um, as pointed out by Marcel Kinsborn, they never uh, babble without pointing, and they never point without babbling. And syntax is thought to be uh, evolved from the motion of walking. And you know the areas in the brain that are to do with speaking and language are closely related to those to do with movement of the hands. Um, and uh, Ramachandran has a wonderful case of a woman who was actually born with no arms. And so she never had the experience of moving her arms. But when she spoke, she described phantom limbs gesticulating. And even when we think about moving, our muscles change their tension. We begin to prepare for action sympathetically. I just learned in the last couple of days from a neurologist in Edinburgh, Thomas Back, who's researching people with motor neurone disease, that they do have cognitive deficits. I knew that, but this, get this that they find it harder to retrieve words that are action-related than others. Well, too much thinking in the abstract is the enemy of action. 
um, as uh, we remember, um, Hamlet reflected that the native hue of resolution becomes sickly lower with the pale cast of thought. And um, we become like Descartes, uh, proud, proudly described himself, Descartes ca called himself a spectator rather than an actor in the world. So this kind of thinking is remote from movement, although thinking is grounded in movement in the heart. It's a very unnatural kind of exercise. I'm not saying it doesn't reveal something, but we have to be careful about the idea of whether it reveals a truth. Because, of course, true means faithful to something, true to your lord or true to your partner. Um, and it has that meaning when we say that surfaces are true when they meet properly and correspond. Uh, that is actually also a difference between the hemispheres, which I haven't got time to talk about today, but there are different ways in which they conceive truth. One conceives it, the left hemisphere, as consistent to an internal system that has been set up, the other as corresponding with experience. Very neat piece of research that he, uh, demonstrated that. If, if, if somebody asks me about it, I'll tell you. So how we think matters. And indeed, when we think we understand something, what we're really doing is saying, I understand something else that I know already, and this looks like that. You compare it with something you already know, and you say, ah, now I understand it. So everything is modelled on a something. Understanding depends, therefore, on metaphor, on saying it's, it's really like one of those. And it, it depends, as I say, on our embodied experience. So when we ignore that, we lead ourselves into problems. And when we're dealing with vastly complex systems that are varied and intrinsically highly unpredictable using linear models, we not surprisingly find that the results don't match our expectations. Uh, so we go into the, the gulf to create um, peace and uh, bring stability to the world. So far, we haven't quite achieved it. And um, then we were able to, clever people were able to predict movements in the stock market so that there'd never be a crash again, after which immediately there was a crash. So theory often deals poorly with the world, which is complex, changing, and only contains unique items. There are, in fact, nothing but unique things in existence. It helps to group them together so that we know how to react to them. But we can get into, particularly in medicine, the fallacy of the measurable. Only things that are measurable are important. In fact, a lot of scientific thinking is pattern recognition. Uh, Adi Pross, in a wonderful book, he's a very distinguished chemist called What is Life, a book that I recommend for a good read, makes this point that, in fact, understanding in science is not a matter of sequential logic, but a matter of seeing a pattern. And it, that is, in fact, like life, and it's like being a good doctor. It's all in the pattern recognition. So the machine model creates a certain expectation of how something will behave, which is linear and mechanical. But it might not actually be that what we're looking at behaves in that way. What we require of a machine, and in medicine, I think, naively, a lot of people do assume that the best way to think of the body is as a machine. In fact, if you haven't reflected on it and thought about it and actually have a background in doing such thinking, you will automatically assume that it's quite unproblematic that the body, that the human being, is a machine. But a machine is very different. A machine is something that we understand from the inside because we made it, and we made it for a purpose. 
and so its, its utility is obvious, and we know what its goal is. And what it is to do is to produce as much of its product as it can, as fast and as precisely as possible. None of this applies to human beings. Unbelievably, we now talk about um, product in terms of you know, medicine, um, policing, um, uh, nursing, quite extraordinary, because it isn't a product, it isn't a thing, and we aren't producers. Um, it's about a relationship. All these things are about relationships in which we draw something out. A teacher draws something out from children, does not put it into them. And in the medical world, we can't actually give people health. We can only draw out the body's... Um, we can help the body, we can collude with the body in defeating an illness. That is where we step in. Machines can be predicted and controlled. That is the whole purpose of them. But there are dangers in thinking that humans can be predicted and controlled. Dreyfus and Dreyfus, uh, in a, a marvelous work um, about mind and machine, uh, pointed out that, in fact, there are five levels of skill. It doesn't really matter what those are, but the key thing is that in the first three levels of skill, having algorithms, rules, and procedures helps. But for the last two levels, to attain the highest levels of skill, they actually impede. And that... A, a truly skillful operator's knowledge is so much part of him that it is like his own body, he may not even be aware of it. And um, it's interesting that doctors are less popular now than they used to be when my grandfather was a doctor. He literally only had six things that were effective to offer people. And yet, <laughs> in that era, doctors were uh, thought of perhaps more affectionately than they are now. And that was perhaps because they understood that the key thing in, in... They didn't have machines to focus on. They just focused on the patient. And it was to do with a relationship, often a lifelong relationship. And they were often found at the deathbed, uh, useless as that might now seem. A waste of important medical product, you and me. And when I was a houseman, I noticed some very odd things going on. Um, there were all these ill people came into the hospital on take. And in, uh, when I was doing acute medicine, they had chest pain largely. And when I was doing surgery, they had largely abdominal pain. And most of these people were sent home without a diagnosis, but not before they'd been subjected to a very large number of tests. On the professorial unit, we had a, a sort of schedule of tests that had to be sent for every case of chest pain, which ran all the way down one page of A4 and halfway down the next. Um, occasionally, this turned up the fascinating information that the patient, almost entirely uh, 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 as a side issue, had some extremely rare and therefore prestigious connective tissue disorder, which kept us happy for days. But usually, <laughs> it didn't actually produce any knowledge about the person and why they were suffering. But nobody thought of sitting down at the bedside of these suffering specimens of humanity and asking them about their marriage, their job, their mortgage, the things that were really at the heart of their pain. And just because something's not precise, it doesn't make it less real, just because something can't be measured. We heard this morning about energy. Uh, and but actually, matter is, uh, I think, equally problematic, and consciousness too, and so are love and gravity. But they are essential to our being, 
and we have no way of measuring them or examining them at all. Equally, psychiatric diseases can cause incalculable morbidity and kill. So in my view, all doctors should be uh, at least attuned to the idea of being a psychiatrist. Um, a, a distinguished colleague of mine once said, psychiatry is a branch of philosophy and medicine is a branch of psychiatry, by which he meant that when you are a medic, what you are experiencing comes filtered through the mind, the consciousness, the uh, temperament of the person who is telling you it and is influenced by them and their reactions to what you say, including the very powerful placebo effect. So all of that is extremely important. We can get bewitched by forms, figures, and algorithms, mechanical ways of thinking. Einstein said, as far as the laws of mathematics refer to reality, they're not certain. And as far as they're certain, they do not refer to reality. We, it's illusory to be looking for certainty. We have to do the best we can as a result of our judgment and our intuition. The trouble with this thinking is it encourages us to see bits of things in the left hemisphere's way. It has narrowly focused pieces of information and it thinks the world is made by stacking them up until you get the whole. In fact, it's not like that. We know um, from neuropsychological testing that one takes in the whole first and then uh, decides to focus on parts uh, as a secondary thing. But there you are. We see the parts but not the whole. And we can get lost in, in specialities, in, uh, in an age where every organelle has a journal. Um, it does, I mean, really. Um, and I experienced this in psychiatry. For example, there's a wonderful drug for people with intractable schizophrenia called clozapine. It, it, does, it has its side effects, but it, is, it can be absolutely transformative. And it's been well known for a long time that using it means that there is less demand on hospital beds and admissions, an improvement in the quality of life of the patient, and an improvement in the economic position of the system. But because the person with the drugs budget, it's an expensive drug, is usually not the same person who's got the budget for the beds, this thing never worked out in practice and was denied to people for a long time, quite irrationally. Bodies, too, are not assemblages of parts. You know, tappets don't change their nature with the context, but parts of human bodies and human minds do. Even genes do. You know, when we managed to do this heroic thing of sequencing the, the, the human genome, we found that there was rather like that wonderful scene in Faulty Towers where, if you remember, there's a, the, the chef is, is, um, is ill and, and he has to get in what he thinks is a duck and he takes the lid off and it's a blancmange. He starts separating with hands. <laughs> he can't find the duck. Well, it's a bit the same with genetics. Uh, there's just not enough information there for a start. So the same gene, PAX6, which codes for your eye, also codes for a frog's eye and a fly's eye. They're very different eyes. And the difference comes from the way the gene uh, acts in context. And of course, that's true of absolutely everything in life. Uh, it's true of poetry. When you take the meaning out of the context, it dies. Music is entirely context. Physics is, in fact, entirely context because it's about the relations between particles whose existence we hardly know, uh, we can't be certain about. Uh, and it's in the patterns, 
It's in the relationships, and indeed our lives are patterns and relationships, and that, as somebody commented earlier, is where meaning comes in this world. And I'd like to gloss the remark, science uh, doesn't take away meaning. Absolutely true, but it can't give meaning either. It's neutral in that respect. And when somebody has a brain insult or injury, it's not just like a, a component in the washing machine going AWOL. The whole vastly complex, multiply recursive system of the human mind is altered. And there are many things, as I say, that can't um, be, uh, if you change the context, change profoundly their nature. Some aspects of humans, such as their limbs, are rather like parts of a machine. For the simple reason that machines were made by humans to achieve many of the tasks that human limbs hitherto fulfilled. Other than that, even a single cell is an unimaginably complex, self-regulating and self-replicating entity carrying out thousands of operations simultaneously that are complexly recursive in effect and which communicates with and responds to millions of other cells of its own and of other kinds. Uh, we we're worried about being able to model the human mind. And um, a distinguished scientist at UCL um, commented on a project where somebody was being offered money, to a large sum of money, to model the human mind. And he said, well, we might do well if we could first model the nematode, which is a tiny worm. We can't do that. Uh, so we're probably not going to be able to succeed in this project. Everything in the body is not... Uh, serial and mechanical, it's not like relays of messages. Everything feeds back. Uh, when you send a message out, another one comes back, as indeed from the heart, uh, as discussed earlier. And here's Marcel Kinsborn on neurons. Marcel Kinsborn, very great Anglo-American neuroscientist. Counter to the traditional image of the brain as unidirectional information thoroughfare, when cell stations in the brain connect, the traffic is almost always bidirectional. The traffic's not in one direction with a little feedback either. Areas interact equally in both directions, directly, reciprocally, or indirectly by looping across several cell stations so that the neural traffic reverberates through its starting point. So we are not going to find it easy to model ourselves when we can hardly model such circuitry. We don't know how to predict it, the outcomes of such complex interactions. So there, is, there are limits to what science can tell us. It is a wonderful tool. It is a wonderful servant, but it should never become the master. And the problem is that people become very distinguished geneticists or astronomers, and they think that this means that it gives them um, some special gift that allows them to say whether God exists or what a human being is or what kind of a thing the world is. I'm afraid those are questions, it's no dis disrespect to science, to say science can't answer their questions for philosophy. Our genes are puppet masters. Uh, well, again, metaphors are the only way in which we understand, and science is particularly metaphorical, and it does rather matter which, gene, which metaphors you use. So if you think of genes as selfish, you see one thing stand forward. If you realize that, in fact, Competition is a very important part of evolution, but just as important is cooperation. You, you wouldn't be able to evolve without competition or without cooperation, and we couldn't function without a degree of cooperation and competition. So the model that you choose tells you very much. And I was dismayed when I saw 
a very distinguished Oxford biologist on television giving the, I think, the Royal Institution lectures to uh, children, 11 to 18-year-olds, very impressionable audience. And she impressed on them at the very word go, these were her opening words, you're amazing, we're all amazing, because we're all hugely complicated machines. Well, how we think about ourselves matters more than words can say. If you compare us to machines, the bits that are like machines will stand forward and it will come to look like a very good fit. As they say to a man with a hammer, everything comes to look like a nail. But in fact, other things about us recede. And the problem is that you don't notice because now you're only concentrating on the bits that fitted your model to start with. All those are hard to see now. Machines, let me make it explicit, are not social beings. They don't have consciousness, feelings, personality, will, or individuality. They have no capacity for imagination, true creativity, spiritual awe, appreciation of music, dance, poetry, art, or nature. They have no moral sense, no sense of humor, and they do not have the ability to change their minds to sorrow over the past and to project a delighted future. And in case that should all sound the slightest bit rarefied, I'd like to remind you that they don't have bodies either. So be mindful of your thinking, of what you permit to seem to you, to come into being for you. It's true that you're amazing. We're all amazing. But it's precisely because we're not just hugely complicated machines. Let's not now or ever allow ourselves to imagine that we are. Time for five minutes of uh, questions. Have we any hands? Just at the top, um, up here on the right. Thank you, Helena. Um, thank you. I thought um, that was brilliant, um, and I really enjoyed your book. Um, I wanted to ask about um, you were saying um, that uh, the meaning is better um, explained by philosophy. And I thought um, philosophy using words is sort of located in the left hemisphere. So I guess my question was, for me, I sort of think of meaning as something that everybody and everything can sort of bring their meaning to it. So it's sort of more holistic than thinking that it's just philosophy. I wondered about your comments. Thank you very much. Well, if I gave the impression that you have to be a philosopher to have meaning in your life, then uh, I made a, uh, uh, gave the wrong impression. What I meant was that in, in uh, academic discourse, science is not going to give the answers to those questions. It's, it's something that comes from living, as you say. But don't forget that language is not just in the left hemisphere. Important aspects of it in, are in the right, particularly metaphorical thinking. And it's actually through metaphors that we understand things. That's how we get a, a hold on them. And taking things out of context and analyzing them deprives them of their meaning, whereas in the context where they are multiply connected, to the world through metaphor, they have meaning. And it's interesting that two very distinguished philosophers, quite different in their 
their thinking styles, although latterly I think Wittgenstein moved more towards <coughs> Heidegger's position. But Wittgenstein and Heidegger, towards the end of their lives, both came to the conclusion that probably philosophy had to be replaced by poetry, which is the way in which our metaphorical understanding works. We have another question over there. If there's any poets in the audience that want to comment on the embeddedness of metaphor, we'd welcome that. There's a question over there. Is there any reason to suppose that consciousness is unique to humans? Um, I don't think there is, no. I mean, obviously, we can't get inside other creatures. We can't even get inside one another. Well, uh, not officially. And uh, <laughs> so uh, it's a difficult thing to know. Uh, one has to use intuition to a large extent um, and uh, a degree of um, feeling. And I think that uh, it seems to me quite clear that animals uh, have consciousness. And uh, although Ray and I... Uh, uh, agree about many things. Uh, probably the only bone I have to pick with him is that he thinks that human beings are somehow altogether different. But I, I'm not sure that that's right. I think it's uh, just a, a, a matter of degree, a very big degree. Um, Agnes, there's a uh, microphone just there. Thank you. Just on that question of um, the embodiedness of metaphor, Maybe for another discussion, I think homeopathy has a part to play in that, which I don't know much about it, but I think it works on that premise that essentially a kind of metaphorical quantity of, of a substance can affect the matter. And um, it would be interesting. I mean, this is a very medical-based, and I'm sure drugs work in exactly the same way if I only knew more about them. But I think it would be interesting to, s to have a discussion at a later date of the bridge between different drug-based substances in terms of matter and and the perhaps the metaphorical role they have to play in our makeup. I'm slightly worried about Professor Tallis in the corner because we've said homeopathy and animals have consciousness in... <laughs> Are you all right? <laughs> yeah, fine. Good, he's all right. <laughs> don't call the ambulance. <laughs> any other... Well, uh, I don't know what Ray thinks about osteopathy, but uh, uh, if you're suggesting that it's somehow magic, then I suspect I'd agree with you. Um, but... Uh, Although I am quite interested in the finding that apparently animals do respond to, uh, to uh, uh, homeopathic... Um, sorry, did I say osteopathy? I mean homeopathy. Ho <laughs> homeop uh, homeopathic medicines um, apparently do seem to have effects on animals. I, I don't know whether that's robust evidence or not. Or, or not. Um, but uh, I wouldn't really like to say it. I mean, I do think that when you give a medicine that uh, there's an awful lot that's going on, as we know, associated with the giving of that medicine, which is why the placebo effect is so powerful. For most conditions, 40% of people will get better, even with a placebo, which is really quite remarkable, and it's the most significant thing about the way our minds affect our bodies, and the thing that has not really been adequately researched, in my view. One last question, just here, um, Smita. Hello, um, sorry, I just wanted to check the mic first. Um, Thank you so much for a very fascinating talk. Um, I love the way you uh, sort of try to break down the dualisms and, and the binaries between the mind, body, and the way we discuss it and the way we talk about it. Um, having said that, there are a number of theorists um, in embodied cogni cognition who are um, kind of resisting the traditional psychoanalysis um, sort of privileging of the mind over the body, and and they they're resisting it by specifically sort of asking for a different language to use to speak. Um, 
and, and to express um, or to live or to be. And um, I'm wondering where, where we see that kind of, um, in the context of medicine or in mental health, uh, play out is they support the sort of, um, in, in people with uh, depression, for example, or, or people suffering from trauma, they support the meaninglessness of existence, or they support that life doesn't need a meaning, or it doesn't need hope, for example, where hope is seen to be a future-oriented cognitive construct. So um, they, they suggest that embodied cognition um, lives for the present, and mindfulness or, or um, you know, meaningfulness is constructed specifically for future-oriented thinking. And that, again, you know, privileges the mind over the body. And I wonder if you have, as a psychiatrist, a kind of opinion on that. I mean, what does it mean to, to live without, you know, it's very existential, is that life doesn't have a meaning. And is well, it look, okay look, to... Look, um, there's an awful lot in there. Um, <laughs> and I d I'm not sure what I'm going to have time to respond to. Um, I think that I, th I would say that um, the distinction between mind and body, um, although we have to make it, uh, is, is artificial. Um, yeah. And that they are two sides of the same thing. Now, uh, that is not a reductionist position. Uh, I always say, you know, if you're going to take the position that there is nothing but matter, then you've just kicked the can down the road because now we have to completely re-sophisticate what we think matter is. After a few billion years, it can give rise to the St. Matthew Passion. You know, so that's pretty amazing stuff that's bubbling away in the jar. Mm. And um, so uh, I'm not really degrading the mind by saying it's embodied or, 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 or the other way around. I think the idea of precedence is a mistake. It suggests there's a serial processing going on, which I don't think there is. It's all of a piece. And so I think that most of the best treatments are those that incorporate elements of addressing the mind and addressing the body, whether that is a physical disease or whether that is a mental one. Mm -hmm. And there are many, I, I, I was a slow learner, um, in my uh, academic career uh, and as a psychiatrist, I generally uh, started off thinking that um, sort of uh, 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 highly cognitive based therapies were the most important ones, but as I got grew up and got more experience, I realized that actually embodied therapies are every bit as powerful and for many people more powerful. So there we are. We will have Thank to you. stop there. Right. Round of applause, please. Three